Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and welcome to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that gets the real stories behind the people and the music of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today we'll be finding out about two staples of the British symphonic repertoire, Elgar's first and second symphonies. I'm joined backstage here at the Queen Elizabeth Hall at the Southbank Centre, home of the LPO. We're in a, a wonderful, comfortable dressing room and I'm joined by violinist Tom Eisner, Corongale player. Sue Burling and horn player Martin Hobbs. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Tom, thank you. Sue Hi, thank and Martin. You. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Hello. Well, today we are speaking about Elgar and I want to just cast your memories back to either when you've performed it or first heard either of the symphonies and which is your favourite. Sue, I'll go to you first. Yes, it's interesting actually. Knowing that we were going to talk about this, I had to go back through... Uh, my memory banks and um, I realised actually that I haven't played Elgar very much at all Mm. particularly symphonies which I think is really interesting but Elgar 1 for me was my first Elgar symphony that I played and that will stick in my memory it's a long time ago but it's wonderful music it's really wonderful music Elgar 2 I need to get to know a little bit better Mm -hmm. by January in time for (laughs) our concert with Ed but it is fascinating we've had a lot of years of playing very different repertoire and it's really rather nice actually to come back to something like Elgar I'm looking forward to it very good. And you're right. Yes, uh, in January with Ed Gardner conducting. So you must be looking forward to really getting into the details, a bit of prep for you. This is good. Uh, and Tom, how about yourself? Can you remember when you first experienced Elgar? Yes, it was um, my very first job, which was in Denmark, the Aarhus Symphony Orchestra. Elgar 1 came up and this must have been in 1983. And Norman Del Mar conducted it. Norman Del Mar was more of a an academic than a conductor, but he loved Elgar, and this came out in the uh, rehearsals where he had all sorts of anecdotes. That was my first experience, because I'd been in Denmark for the last three and a half years, and somehow playing that piece made me think of home. I don't forget that tingly feeling at the end of it when the tune comes back in the last movement. That's a great introduction. I'm going to delve into that a bit deeper, but I do want to hear from Martin. What was your first experience of Elgar? So when I was in Youth Orchestra, Hampshire Youth Orchestra, we played Elgar 1. And I must have been 17 or 18, something like that. So that was my first experience. And like a lot of pieces you play in Youth Orchestra, you know, it it really sticks with you. And whenever it comes back, it's so familiar. It brings back sort of memories of that sort of, you know, teenage years. It's uh, quite strong. Yeah. It does feel like coming home. Funnily, yeah. it's weird, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It does yeah. just yeah. coming yeah. I have the same experience with music. It's interesting Martin says that with actually Delius, because we did a lot of Delius in my youth orchestra. Whenever I play it, it comes back and you never forget mm. that, do you? It's sort of in- ingrained somehow because, yeah. you know, youth orchestra, you rehearse so much and uh, just sort of stays in yeah. there. Yeah. 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 
I guess, do you feel that your technique changes over time? Because it's the same piece, it's the same part. Mm. How do you feel your playing has progressed since then? Oh, it definitely gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) The more you play it. (laughs) Um, Well, the the thing about the Elgar symphonies, they're, they're quite challenging to play. Well, the horn parts are very challenging, not only in stamina but also technique he writes some pretty flashy bits and i used to be able to play those quite well <laughs> you still can oh that's <laughs> lovely. So modest. But he, yeah. he writes virtuosically doesn't he I mean, he must yeah, have had yeah. some amazing players because the brass writing is amazing the string writing's yeah. Oh, yeah. challenging yeah. Yeah. stamina I mean, you, wise for us it's challenging but not technically so much yeah. yeah i mean you wonder what it must have been like when they were first presented with the parts yeah you know the ink still wet and uh, mm. especially number two um yeah it's, it's tricky yeah amazing music and really effective Effective. Yes. I mean, I don't think he writes in a way that is is unreasonable, you know, for, for, <laughs> yeah, for us. So, he was pushing uh, pushing the boundaries. Pushing the boundaries, the I think, yeah. yeah. Tom, do you think it was a shame that he only wrote two? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he came to write them fairly late in his life. I mean, by um, 1908, sort of pre-First World War pieces. The interesting thing is that he was already established. He'd done Enigma, which was the big break for him. And um, they're very much 19th century pieces. You think, well, what else was going on at that time? And I was thinking, the interesting thing is that Richard Strauss was almost his direct contemporary. They actually knew each other. But you think of Salome was written in about 1900. So it's well ahead of its time. Mm. And Elgar's writing still in this 19th century way. You know, one, wonderful pieces, and I love them. Mm. But if, you, if you listen to In the South, I mean, the opening of that could be Strauss. Don Juan. It could be Strauss, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. yes, yeah. But also he's left some sketches behind, isn't he? So we all think about his symphonies one and two, but there is a possible third. Yeah, I mean, Um, that that, that was completed by someone, wasn't it? Anthony Payne. Okay, yeah, Yeah. I've never played it. um, Has anyone ever played that? No. No. Are you interested to play? Are you intrigued to play it? It has been played and I think it's been recorded. It's been recorded, yeah. yeah, yeah. But not by us. And you spoke about sort of the impact of Elgar One, really, Mm. in first performing that. And when it was first performed, it was hailed as the first great British symphony. Sue, do you agree? Well, it was perceived really well and it had a hundred performances in its first year and mm. it hit big in Germany. It was really big in Europe and that's where I think all the doors opened for him. It became very popular over there, much more so than in England initially. And Tom, there's this correlation between Elgar and Britishness. You know, you've spoken about it mm. feels like home and, you know, it's, it grounds us. What makes his music feel or sound British? Well, it's interesting, that whole thing, because if you carbon date various traits that Elgar has, Schumann, Robert Schumann, was a very big influence. Mm. And Schumann's second symphony in the slow movement sounds like Elgar wrote it. (gasps) Yes, it's it's extraordinary. But I was playing Siegfried at um, Bayreuth. There's one bit that sounds like Elgar won. Bum, 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 ba-da-dum, bum. You know, that could almost be parts of the first act of Siegfried. So, the, you know, the Wagner influence was enormous on him. And, um, you know, he's growing up in the Midlands in uh, Worcester, in uh, Malvern. He taught himself. I mean, his dad was a piano tuner. He had to do everything himself. So he would have discovered his music, obviously no recordings in those days, from looking at scores. Mm. I'm fascinated just by the sounding British thing. Um, <laughs> because in context... We didn't really have any huge British composers 
dating back to Purcell and Elgar comes along and yeah. there's that association. And they say, well, Elgar, he's British. So, and then you think, well, okay, so we're listening to Elgar symphonies, but we think it's British because it's Elgar and Elgar's British. Yes. It's, <laughs> that's interesting. It's, yes. You just think, that's all we know. Yes. But is it really? I mean, I think he sounds more European. Yes. And we've just been comparing him to Strauss. And so yeah. I'm, I'm quite fascinated by, uh, you know. So it's more about perception. his heritage than yeah. the music that he's making. Yeah, I think. But then, because there is that correlation, Martin, do you think when British orchestras play it, there is sort of a, a pride that comes along with the music compared to maybe a recording you've heard by another orchestra? I think we'd like to think so, yes. <laughs> but how do the French play Debussy? I mean, I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, I, can't, I yeah. can't help feeling it's, it's, it's... It belongs to everyone. Yeah. Well, I today, think so, yeah. I mean, you know, you know the, the, all orchestral musicians are... Good, you know. Maybe it's more up to a conductor's interpretation. On yeah, and, and I mean, so, also it. our orchestra is so cosmopolitan. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know how many different countries <laughs> you have. I think that's probably the same with, with a lot yes. of orchestras yes, around. So, you know, I, I guess when it comes to January, there'll be quite a few people who've never played Elgar one, which is great, actually. Well, I want to get a bit practical now. Yeah. And I know you're all phenomenal players. I've seen you in action many times and I absolutely am a major fan. But I want to talk about these unique challenges for your particular instruments mm. through both symphonies that you can remember. So, Sue, you're saying you're not as familiar with number two. Mm-hmm. But what sort of challenges do you find well, when you're... Both symphonies, I mean, they're huge, they're epic works. And stamina is quite important. Mm. They're, they're a long blow. So some of us are used to turning up for, you know, the old symphony where I have a 12-bar tune and go home again. Yes. Um, <laughs> famous. Technically, they're not challenging. It's a stamina thing. It's, it's all about line. And he's so clever. He'll just craft in a couple of notes where I will just take the orchestra and modulate into the next little phrase and the next chapter. So they're just little subtle things. You just need to know harmonically when to bring something out. But he does it all for you. Okay. So for me, I might sound really naive, but I, I don't look at it as a huge challenge. But uh, it's just it's a stamina thing to just to be able to, depending on the conductor and how they craft it, how they mould it. You mm. know. So what sort of detail is in the score then? That well, he goes into quite you. minute detail, but that's for everybody in terms of dynamics. And he, I think he wants quite a sense of freedom around where the phrases go and the dynamics. He's very detailed about that. Mm. And I know Tom will probably talk more about it, but he, in his scores he's written the fingerings in for mm. some of the violin yes. parts, ah. which if you play that, it sounds a certain way. It's something to do with slides and things, isn't it? I know I've talked to somebody about it. I think a lot of the fingerings you can tell that he wasn't that good a violinist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, he was, Elgar was basically, he was one of the reasons why he was so successful, because he basically taught himself, Mm. was because he spent his formative years and right into his 20s teaching amateurs. And so he had to do all sorts of arrangements from scratch. And that's, you know, how he learned his trade. And um, he would have been able to play all sorts of instruments. He, he was quite a good violinist. He was a multi-instrumentalist. Yes. He played yes. all sorts, so he really yeah. knew that's how he got to know yes, that's, how that's to right. write for us. Is, it, is there something about the sliding for you with your... Um, or not, is that just... It's just that there are the odd fingerings there. Sometimes he'll put a harmonic in just for a, a sort of special sound, but they're not especially helpful. So, Tom, just yeah. on the fingering, for the non-violinists of us that are listening in, what is fingering? And also, why would he want to dictate what position to play in? Well, he'd want a particular sound and uh, rather than everyone playing it on the E string or the A string in first position, to get a softer sound, you'd play it in a higher position on the D string or even uh-huh. the, the G string higher up. 
And do you find that gives a different tone? It, oh, it would, very, very much so, yes. Oh. yes he, he does give instructions. He'll, a lot of the time he's saying there's a four, which means the fourth string, which is the G string. Mm-hmm. One very interesting thing is that Elgar is one of the few composers where there's often the second violins are playing at a higher register than the first violins. Well, they take over. And that's presumably has a lot to do with the fact that he did play second violin. I think that's what was his comfort <laughs> Finally going to get that is, moment. It really is. It's a great, the second violins, they have great parts there. And I always wonder about that because with classical music, you know, it's composed, it's set. The the composer knew what they wanted to hear. So with something like that, do you have creative liberty to say, eh, not really going to do that, Elgar, or do you have to do it? Oh, no, you can, I mean, as long as you're playing together, you know, in the first part, in, the, in section, any string section, as long as the group is as one, uh-huh. it's fine. But there's a lot of liberty for fingering. So you, some of us do more slides than others and uh, artistic license artistic there is I think you know always because I mean I think when it comes to dynamics especially in a huge symphony I think that's so for my part anyway it's being able to cut through have the power to cut through and make sure that those just even if it's two notes that they're really important and they sing through Mm. but they might be marked piano but I'll be playing them MF. Mm. So there is all of that. You, you have to sort of form it on the day and mm. see what's going that. on around I love you. It. You don't just turn up and play the dots. You've got to really know. think about it. <laughs> and Martin, you were speaking earlier about the challenges for the horns. Mm. Uh, what are some of the unique challenges in Elgar symphonies and how does he help with his directions? Well, yeah, dynamically is a huge range. So you've got triple piano to triple forte, I guess. The parts, I think you, you sort of have to decide in the tutti sections when you need to blend when you all have the tune together and then the moments where you have to sort of really pr- try and project as, mm. as well the more sort of solo bits but he doesn't really write big horn solos for one player there's your bit here and there you know writes a lot of unison tunes and sort of section general section playing so yeah that's a challenge to sort of balance that and work that out as well as a section yeah. as, as a section but also there, there are a lot of technical things so he writes sort of pretty fast scales and um in the the last minute of the second symphony in particular there's this um really sort of twiddly phrase you get a few times with i think the cellos and probably the bassoons which um usually sort of involves a bit of fakery actually <laughs> um, oh really but, <laughs> oh it's all coming you, you out can, now you, you can cut that um, but, no, I like it. Uh, but also, he has this phrase, it sort of goes... And it also, in the music, I think it switches between treble and bass clef oh, during no. the phrase. So that's a, a sort of a, a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. And also the beginning of the last movement of the Second Symphony, the lovely tune, which quite often comes up in auditions for low horn, and uh, that's written in the bass clef, but doesn't sound as though it's written in the bass clef. It's... Um, very sort of strange thing. Why would um, he have done that? I don't know. Just I don't to know. Test, the, test the horns. Um, yeah, I mean, there's this funny thing with bass clef in horns with old notation and new notation, where the old notation is written an octave too low and you play it a bit higher, right. whereas the new notation is written at pitch and it sounds lower. I don't want to get too technical. Yeah. And with some composers, it's a bit debatable about which is which. So you can suddenly find you get to the end of a piece and there's you've been playing stuff in the wrong octave. But uh, <laughs> I think with Elgar, it's, it's usually pretty pretty clear. Um, having said that, I can't remember if it's old or new notation. But yeah, <laughs> you yeah. kind of, yeah. And the stamina thing as well, because 
especially at the end of number one, you know, as you said, when the tune comes back, there is a lot of blowing and you've been playing for a long time and then you sort of need to raise it towards the end. So I guess it's a question of um, pacing. Don't peak too soon. Don't peak too soon. (laughs) Throughout this podcast, we've spoken about composers, we've deep dived into different music, but also we've spoken about conductors. Do you remember your experience of performing Elgar with different conductors and how their approaches change? Um, well, I was talking about Norman Del Mar in Denmark in 1983. Completely by coincidence, right at the end of his life, we used to have a series at Kenwood outside yes. playing in, the, in Kenwood, the stately home in the gardens. I don't think that happens anymore. But um, everyone in the first violin section took that date off, apart from one person. And the uh, orchestra manager said to me, everyone's taken it off. So, if you want to, you can lead it. There was three weeks' notice. Yes. Or we could get a guest leader in. So I thought, hmm, Elgar won. And um, I think it was Tintagel and Walton Violin. I have three weeks to do this. And I set myself the challenge. And I did it. I actually rang up Norman Del Mar to ask him about the speeds he'd been taking. And he said that well, in all the years he'd been conducting, he's never had anyone ring him up to ask a question wow. much like that. Um, now, the, the incredible thing, when I got through it, the first and last time I ever led an orchestra in my oh. life, and Norman Del Mar died about five months later, so um, I never led an orchestra after that. So oh. It's not my territory. I like being a part of a section. Let's take a bit more of a a deep dive into the music itself then. Elgar 1, tell us about the big tune that opens and closes the symphony and what's it like to play? Is that a lot on the horns? Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of play in the big tutti, we play the tune, the whole section play it and you need lots of air and uh, (laughs) (laughs) but um, because we're all playing it, we can all breathe at separate times to make it all nice and sustained. wanted to ask that when you're playing as a section do you plan who breathes when because what if you will decide to breathe at the same time well i i normally keep an eye on who's on my left and i wait until they've breathed before oh, i do so and what if they don't <laughs> then, then, then i'm in trouble <laughs> artificial respiration i'll be looking out yeah. for that i'll be there in january <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i suppose there is that that kind of thing but um i think if it happens too often we, we might plan it but generally we don't we sort of wait and it's uh, tends to naturally sort itself out. Mm. You don't want to get too fussy about these things. Yes, yeah. Not too prescriptive. Yeah, you don't don't know where it might lead. And what about your experience then, Tom, in terms of the dynamics and also sort of maybe difficult movements? Probably one of the hardest ones is the scherzo in the first symphony. That's always rehearsals that the general rehearsal, the conductor will make the first go over and over again to get that, get that right. I mean, the, that's the great thing about doing these things and sort of doing them at three-year intervals, four-year intervals, because you get a chance to get it right what you messed up last time. And, yes. You know, I was, I was thinking you don't, you know, this thing of Martin was saying about standards and playing and things, but I always find that nothing stays the same. It either gets worse or it gets better. Mm. You know, there's nothing, 
Doesn't don't seem you feel to the bar gets higher? Oh, that's true. Oh, I, that, that's oh. the thing. The and I think that's higher, the thing. Yeah. And it's really hard for us when you get to a certain position after so many years and you look back and I look back and everything and think I could play everything in the old days and I can't play it now. Mm. How did I do it? But actually, I think it's just a question of the bar getting higher yeah, and higher. It's not as simple as that. So, so what, what do you think that is then? Because you'd think it would be the opposite, that, you know, over time and having played it more and more, mm. it would get easier and your interpretation could be more you because you've played it more often. Why would it be the opposite? Personally, I'm just a lot harder on myself. It doesn't. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't ever get there and think, "Well, I've done it now. I know how to do everything." Yeah. It's a constant yeah, learning yeah. journey and trying to get better every day. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't really that's let up. Does you it? can't really you rest on your laurels, no. ever, can you? And as soon as you do it, that's when it all goes wrong. Yes. And then it becomes yes. yeah. you're not emoting anything. You're not producing much. You're just playing notes. And so. I feel that there's an advice moment coming in here, Martin, because <laughs> for, for musicians, for practising musicians, professional musicians, we are hard on ourselves. We know that. How do you change the being hard on yourself to knowing that it's growth and it's OK and next time there's another chance rather than I'm just terrible. I can't do it anymore. I used to be able to do it and I can't do it anymore. What would be your managing technique for that? Well, you, you can't be too hard on yourself and you, you sort of have to accept that no one's perfect and if you're trying to be perfect all the time, then you can end up sort of getting pretty upset about it. And as you said, you kind of become so intent on trying to play the notes that you lose any expressiveness, whereas you know, to a certain extent, if you focus on the expressiveness and, and actually making music, then the technique can come and you, you can relax a bit more. We're not machines. Um, yeah, we're not And machines. I, I find more and more, actually, the older I get, if I actually do just chill out and relax a bit more, yeah. everything flows so much better. Yeah. I don't give myself a hard time. Yeah, and everything just, we've got it there. It's just that we set these challenges every day. So taking us now to Elgar II, the funeral march for Edward VII, what's your feeling when that comes in? I mean, it's quite a, a big part of the symphony, isn't it? Is it beautiful? Is it bombastic, Sue? What would you say? I don't think it's bombastic. <laughs> um, but the two words I would use would be heroic, melancholy. I think everything's incredibly grandiose about mm -hmm. this work, you know? So grandiose, but then... Where does the melancholy bit come in? What, what, what do you think of the elements that bring that? Well, he just, it's so special in his writing. I mean, these movements are, it's so transparent. I think a, a lot of people think about the sort of English reserve, but I just don't, I, I don't think it's there at all with Elgar. No. I think the emotion's out there. Yes. It's on the page mm, yeah. and it's, it's not on reserved. Street, isn't he? Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely out there and it affects everybody in a different way yeah. and people will hear it with different ears and it will affect them in a different way and that's mm. the magic of music, isn't it? Who needs words when we've got all of that? Absolutely so. And of course, you haven't had the chance really to play Elgar too very much, which we're all very excited that you'll get to do so in January. But Tom, why do you think that you weren't playing it very much? Well, Vladimir Yurovsky, our previous principal conductor, when he was with us, he, we did a lot of Vaughan Williams and Britain, but he was slightly reluctant to do Elgar. And I think it's interesting because we did the violin concerto and then he discovered Falstaff. And uh, we did a wonderful performance of that at the festival, about, I think about four years ago. Mm. And he said to me afterwards that he said, I finally got Elgar. And so that was his, his way. And so, wow. Yeah. Can I ask, what are you most looking forward to? Is there a particular movement or a particular symphony in total that you are looking forward to in January? Maybe something you haven't been able to play before, but you've heard it so many times. Quickfire, Sue. For me, it would be the slow movement of Elgar 1. And my husband said the other day, he said, 
please play that at my funeral. Oh, so I just thought, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's absolutely, oh, yeah, that's I think I would, yeah, yeah, that would be I'm not sure, one of my highlights. I think it's a beautiful movement, beautiful. I'm really looking forward to the end of Elgar 1 where the tune comes back and absolutely a very special moment very good and Martin well I was going to say that <laughs> the end of the first symphony because it's a real um, you know hairs on the back of your neck yeah. um, standing up moment and uh, but I'm going to say the opening of the second symphony is it's just great I mean it's, it's straight in and lots of E flat which is a yes. great key as well oh, yes. and um, and it just sort of swings along yeah. really nicely yeah that always reminds me of the Schumann symphony the Rennes symphony yeah nice oh well great points to look out for I'm excited for that and any other favourite moments in the first symphony? Well, I love the fact that in the scherzo movements that Tom was talking about earlier, the violins have this semiquaver passage that starts as etc. And towards the end of the movement, it all starts to slow down. They get the same phrase that's half speed and then quarter speed and then probably eighth speed. And then it all stops and the slow movement starts. And right. then you realise that the tune, the slow movement, is exactly the same, but really slowed down. That's and um, that's, that's a, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing moment. At the end of the symphony, he brings back that tune as well. You know. Oh, I do love a theme. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's really, it's really um, hairs on the back of everything, that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even on the head. <laughs> but I think also in these symphonies, we're talking about the funeral march, but I think there's a lot of joy as well. Yeah. Um, there is sort of pomp, and, but um, there's a lot of joy, really lovely stuff. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely be listening out for all of that. And that, that's, I love it when you when you hear a theme come through and you think, how clever is that? He must have really thought about it and wanted that Absolutely. thread to just continue through. Yeah. Well, I'm wishing you all the very best for your rehearsals. Looking forward to hearing Elgar too. And I'll be watching you all with glee that you're finally getting to express it even more. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, 
Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Tom Eisner, Sue Burling and Martin Hobbs for discussing Elgar's amazing symphonies with me and giving us so much insight into them. The LPO will be performing both symphonies in January 2023. Check out lpo.org.uk for tickets. Please get in touch on social media at LP Orchestra, LP Orchestra, or with me at Yolanda Brown. And thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage coming up soon. I look forward to joining you then. Thank you.